Good day and thank you for standing by and welcome to the Pinnacle Investment Management Group Limited half-year FY 2022 Financial Results Teleconference. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star one on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you need any further assistance, please press star zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to you for a speaker today, to Mr. Ian McCowan. Thank you. Please go ahead. Thanks, Kevin. And welcome to everyone who's joined us on the call this morning. Uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for being with us. So as, as you've heard, this call is to discuss our results for the first half of the 2022 financial year. We posted with the ASX last night our formal results announcement, our director's report and audit reviewed financial statements for the half year, our Appendix 4D, and importantly, our investor presentation. We'll be speaking to the presentation this morning, uh, or rather to a few parts of it. The colleagues with me on the call are Alan Watson, our chairman, Andrew Chambers, Executive Director with particular responsibility for institutional and international distribution, Ramzan Jaju, who leads our retail distribution function, and Dan Longen, our CFO. So I'll simply call out the main themes and highlights of our results and briefly elaborate a few aspects that we feel are particularly important for analysts and shareholders. We'll leave plenty of time for questions, which you're welcome to direct to any of the Pinnacle representatives on the call. As you can see on the agenda slide three, there are sections where the relevant executive will probably be Andrew or Ramsam or Dan rather than me. Uh, slide two is a disclaimer that is important and we would ask you to read this at your leisure. Slide three is an agenda. Slide five is titled, A Broadly Diversified Platform in Place to Move Ahead with Sustained Growth. And this is really our theme slide for the half-year period that we're reporting on. As that heading indicates, uh, we believe very strongly that we have in place a broadly diversified platform that gives us great confidence that we will be able to move ahead with continued sustained growth. We make four major points in summary. We have ongoing opportunities for growth from multiple sources in three horizons, both in Australia and overseas, and in a range of markets and a range of asset classes. We have a diversified, increasingly international platform generating sustained and resilient performance. We are prepared for and are seeking attractive inorganic growth. We have approximately $135 million in dry powder available to apply to investments that will provide inorganic growth. And though we recognise the possibility 
of further external adversity, such as equity market downturns. We have seen these before and proved ourselves to be resilient to them, and increasingly so, given our growing and increasingly diverse platform. Now, the first sub-point under point one relates to Horizon One growth. Although we've had some net outflows from the domestic institutional market over the six-month period due to client rebalancings, we believe this is a short-term factor and those outflows have been more than offset by the combination of international inflows, which tend to be at higher fees, and most importantly, our record retail inflows, the highest of any six-month period in our history at $2.9 billion, yielding overall net inflows for the half year from all markets of $2.2 billion, setting aside the $3.9 billion very low fee Omega mandate that we've discussed in previous presentations. So when you consider the much higher fees, not to mention the stickiness of these retail net inflows, the financial impact, so the ongoing revenue and profit impact of these strong retail and international inflows well and truly overwhelm that of the short-term domestic institutional outflows. We've continued to make Horizon 2 investments, which have negatively impacted in the short term the profit outcomes of both Pinnacle itself and the affiliates. And the returns on these investments will be another factor driving future profit growth through the market cycle, irrespective of equity market conditions. Funds under management attracting performance fees have continued to grow. They're up 9% from $28.7 billion at 30th of June to $31.2 billion at 31st of December. And we emphasise that the timing and size of performance fees from the 18 significant performance fee strategies are uncorrelated with each other strategy and almost entirely uncorrelated with equity markets, being based on outperformance of benchmarks, not absolute returns. Our average base fees have increased again, albeit fairly modestly, and we have continued to increase the diversity of our client base. And there's been ongoing evidence demonstrating another important factor that we believe will continue to add to our profit growth, namely the operating leverage that is embedded throughout our business, particularly in virtually all of the affiliates, which results in far greater percentage revenue growth than cost growth as funds under management grow over time. Take as a simple example the expansion of Hyperion margins as Hyperion's funds under management in its global equity strategy increased from the current sum of just under $4 billion 
towards the capacity of that strategy, which is a multiple of that. Think similarly of strategies such as all antipodes strategies, Plato's global strategies, Syria's global strategies, Firetrail's global strategies, most of Coolabar's strategies, Akia's emerging market strategy, and so on, to name just a few. This operating leverage factor has to date been masked to some degree by the commitment of most affiliates, as well as of Pinnacle itself, to add resources ahead of and for the development of additional strategies, paving the way for future revenue and profit growth. Now, in terms of point two on this slide, we have in place a platform by which we mean high-quality distribution capabilities, high-quality infrastructure capabilities, and a reputation in the market for partnering with high-quality investment managers, each among the very best in their field and for consistently delivering to the needs of both the affiliates and their clients. We will continue to add funds under management and profits by way of organic inflows into our high-quality existing affiliates, incubating new affiliates and strategies, and careful but deliberate acquisitive growth into new asset classes and markets. We are prepared for and seeking attractive inorganic inorganic growth. Multiple attractive opportunities are emerging, but the discipline and patience that we demand of ourselves means we can't know what the timing of proceeding with any of these will be until the stars align and we're actually ready to commit and consummate a transaction. We are indeed committed to taking advantage of the significant offshore opportunity that exists for us to evolve into a global multi-affiliate by exporting our model. But again, we don't want to place pressure on ourselves to achieve outcomes by any particular dates or times, as that is how bad decisions and bad acquisitions happen. Then point four on this slide, I've already mentioned that we've demonstrated that although we are not immune from market downturns, a significant portion of our fund moves with markets, and that can be quantified fairly easily, we have proved ourselves to be resilient. We are far more diversified than many other fund managers, and increasingly so in recent years. We believe we can continue to grow in those kinds of conditions, should they eventuate. And there's no reason to believe flows would be negatively impacted. We've explained previously that periods of market downturn have actually been beneficial for us in several respects. It emphasises and demonstrates strongly the benefits for clients of our business model. Standalone boutiques can experience stress and institutions often respond by cutting costs and reducing the quality of their services and resourcing. And down markets can throw up acquisition opportunities 
at more favourable prices. Turning now to slide six, a few financial highlights of our results. I've mentioned that the revenue growth resulting from our strong retail and international inflows has far exceeded any financial impact of the institutional net outflows. The raw net flow numbers don't provide a good representation of the ongoing financial impact. And in any event, we are confident that these reflect short-term factors and our institutional pipeline remains strong. Our aggregate funds under management at 31st of December were $93.6 billion, up $4.2 billion, or 5% from 30th of June. Retail funds under management... Hello, are you there? Pardon me, the speaker line um, line has been muted. Please continue, thank you. Okay, so I was just turning now to slide six, a few financial highlights. And I was mentioning that the raw net flow numbers don't provide a good representation of the ongoing financial impact. And that in any event, we're confident these reflect short-term factors. Um, and our institutional pipeline remains strong. Um, I mentioned our aggregate funds under management, 31st of December, $93.6 billion. Retail funds under management increased 17% to $23.8 billion over the half. Aggregate affiliate revenue was up 19% to $240.5 million, with base fee revenue up 42% and performance fee revenue 58% lower than the high level of performance fees in the prior comparable period. And net profit after tax at $40.1 million was up 32% on the PCP. It would have been $41.9 million or up 38% were it not for the write-off through the P&L of $1.8 million for reminiscent. Basic earnings per share was up 23% to 21.5 cents per share, and diluted EPS up 26% to 21 cents per share. And we've declared an interim dividend of 17.5 cents per share, up 50% on the prior comparable period, 100% franc. And 77% of strategies with a track record in excess of five years have outperformed their benchmark over the five years to 31st of December. With further detail on investment performance in slides 10, 49, 50 and 51. Slide 7 has further detail on our platform, including the 16 affiliates and some business highlights including the Horizon 3 acquisition of 25% of 5V and the Horizon 2 incubation of Langdon Capital Partners in Canada and some additional initiatives in Palisade. Slide 8 shows our continued track record of earnings growth over the six years since we became a pure play listed funds manager, our EPS, have grown at 47% per annum compound to the end of 
the last financial year. You can see the growth. Um, yeah, dividends have grown at over 50% per annum compound as well. Slide nine shows our growth over the past two and a half years, which encompasses the whole of the COVID crisis period to date. Slide 10 shows the specifics of the affiliate five-year performance records. Slide 11 shows the growth in our funds under management over the years. Note that our closing fund is 21% higher than the average through the first half. Slide 12 provides some detail on the affiliate's performance fees, earned and potential. The volume of performance fee fund continues to increase. Slide 16 and 17 show further details on our financial results. I've already called out the highlights. And slide 18, further details on our balance sheet. We have cash and principal investments of $176 million, having drawn down a further $70 million of loan facility, giving us $135 million of dry powder. Now, the remaining slides provide detailed information on institutional international distribution, retail distribution, our growth agenda, and our commitment to corporate responsibility, including our highest ever donations to the Pinnacle Charitable Foundation. But I'll stop there and invite questions now. Thank you very much. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you will need to press star, star one on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. If you wish to cancel your request, please press the pound hash key. Once again, it is star one and wait for your name to be announced. Thank you very much. We have multiple questions in the queue. Our first question comes from the line of the company of Morkins from Scott Murdoch. Scott, please ask your question. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Ian, everyone. Um, just a couple for me to start off with, if that's all right. Um, I'll just start on retail flows. I guess um, to the extent that this is possible to answer um, the current volatility and pullback in some of the high-profile names that have attracted inflows over the last half, um, just interested in your confidence that the current run rate in retail can be sustained? Yes, so I'll start off, Scott, and perhaps throw to Ramson. Um, look, the main point I'd make, look, you know, it is very difficult to predict short-term movements in flows. Um, retail, perhaps easier than insto, but still difficult to predict. Um, I'd make the point... Um, our retail flows are very diversified. So we have quite a range of affiliates that are all experiencing quite strong inflows. Now, you're right. Um, the largest have been, you know, Hyperion, ResCap, Coolabar Metrics. And, you know, there have been changes in the marketplace recently. But... Um, you know, the diversity of the strategies that are popular in retail, including some such as the metrics um, retail fund that's been recently launched, um, you know, that really does underpin growth. Ramsey, did you want to say anything about retail flows? Sure. Ian, can you hear me? Yep. 
Excellent. So thanks for the question, Scott. But we talked on uh, numerous occasions about the momentum being a big factor of driving flows. And in retail, when you get an allocation in model portfolios, when you get strong research ratings, short-term volatility doesn't impact what advisors are doing on a month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter basis. So our confidence remains that we have strong um, exposure in models, and that should continue for the foreseeable future. Okay, thank you. Um, I'll just ask the easy ones on flows um, while I've got the line. Just on the Insto pipeline, um, obviously you've expressed confidence um, in that pipeline, you know, for some time now, and that's uh, largely come through, you know, especially in the FY21 year. But just, um, I guess, interested in a bit more colour, given there has been outflows in this period, um, just that pipeline where where you see areas and funds that give you confidence to make those um, those strong statements around Insto flows. So, Andrew, do, do you want to take that? Yeah, thanks, thanks for the question, uh, Scott. So, um, if you think about, you know, flows from an institutional perspective versus retail, you typically find that retail investors tend to be more cyclical and institutional investors tend to be counter-cyclical in terms of the way they allocate flows. So, what we've seen over the last half is a lot of rebalancing, you know, systematic rebalancing, back to target weights in asset allocation uh, within portfolios, particularly in equity markets as they, as they continue to rally through the course of the second half. Obviously, markets have fallen during the course of January, which we believe obviously um, uh, removes that probably that impulse to continue to, to rebalance away from equities. And so we think that headwind potentially over time becomes more of a tailwind. So that's probably point, point number one. I should also highlight in the first half that our combined institutional international growth flows were 27% higher than PCP. It's just that the outflows, largely owing to rebalancing, obviously the Amiga outflow, was higher, more elevated than previously. In fact, even our domestic flows were 40% higher than PCP. So certainly the sales momentum is there, uh, but obviously the rebalancing, which is counter-cyclical, as I mentioned, can be pronounced from time to time. Now, in terms of our pipeline today, if I look through, you know, the pipeline we put together and we run within our own sales force, it's never been bigger than what it is today. And it's obviously we have a larger sales force. We also have a very large global addressable market. If I think about the boutiques, a very strong potential upside in the likes of um, Hyperion, Antipodes and IKEA. So two-thirds of their pipeline sits outside of Australia today for those three boutiques. Um, so they have potentially very good, good um, uh, pipeline ahead. Um, the likes of our credit managers, given the, 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 the magnitude and direction of base rates around the world, running zero duration based strategies, such as Coolabar in the public markets, or floating rate strategies such as metrics in private credit, which has enormous structural growth behind it, um, provides us a lot of confidence in ongoing um, AUM growth that we've seen certainly in the first half. Does that give you sufficient colour or would you like me to um, elaborate a bit further? No, I think that's good. Thanks. Um, uh, thank you very much. Just in the interest of time. Um, I've just got a couple more before I pass it on, if that's all right. Just on performance fee, um, performance fee farm, obviously you, you give us all the details there, but just interested if you have this number, um, what percent is currently above its necessary hurdles and just I guess high level on on 
a second one on performance fees. There has been, you know, um, a certain amount of performance fees linked um, to unlisted assets, sort of sensitive to, to interest rates. Um, you know, Palisade comes to mind with a big tailwind from interest rates in, you know, in, in recent years. Just your view on the potential for some of these performance fees to be at risk given that interest rate environment has shifted? So perhaps I'll, I'll start off on that. Um, Palisade, um, you're absolutely correct, Scott. Palisade has historically produced quite large performance fees, and that's a fundamental part of their business model. Their thumb is not huge and doesn't grow, you know, in the billions in the way that some of the other affiliates do, but they earn, you know, quite high base fees and uh, more so performance fees. Um, so we, we always have to be careful about making predictions, but what I can tell you, Palisade is in very good shape. The assets that it owns, uh, by and large, are doing well, notwithstanding, you know, there's been some short-term issues with airports and, and so on, but um, they're in very good shape. They're adding assets. They've announced they've added, you know, a wind farm, the Port of Geelong, and they're making other investments, deploying more capital. So all I can say is I feel very confident about Palisade's performance fees. I recognise the point about higher interest rates increase the discount rate. But, um, you know, I don't see any fundamental problem in the performance fee potential of Palisade. And they're, they're a very good manager. They've made very good investments. And I feel good about them. Um, yeah, probably yeah. adding an additional point to that, if I may, is yeah. that if you look at what actually valuers have done with um, real assets, is they typically haven't followed base rates down. They've added an alpha factor to find a mid, midpoint for long-term base rates which is higher than the current rate. So to the degree that rates go up, there's no need to necessarily move, um, uh, adjust that discount rate and therefore have the yeah. same impact on, on the valuation of those assets. That's right. They've taken a kind of a long-term average view of interest rates rather than marking their discount rate down to market for short-term rates. But, yeah, that's right. Um, now, Scott, you also asked about the proportion that are um, sort of at or above the high water mark. Um, we're not publishing that number because it honestly it moves around a lot, uh, even in a fairly short space of time. Uh, Hyperion, for example, we've seen their uh, their performance uh, relative to benchmark move quite a lot with market conditions. So uh, I'm going to pass on that number for you. But what I would point out is there are 18 strategies. So at any point in time, um, there are typically a number that are sort of in the money and a number that are out of it. Um, you know, there's significant thumb in antipodes that's under um, fire trail that has quite large performance fee thumb. Its, its performance has been quite strong. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to duck the question, not because we don't like to be as transparent as we can be, but it just moves around so much. No, that's fine. Um, 
I'll uh, I'll work for my money there and and uh, and, and and work it out myself. Um, yeah, that's uh, your job. Last, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, just one last one. Um, thanks, Dean. I know there's others that want to um, question, but I just have uh, one more, if that's okay. Just your statements around um, exporting the model. Clearly, you've um, flagged offshore expansion for some time. Um, it's pretty clear you're you're um, keen to do something offshore, but just interested in the in the term exporting the model. Um, clearly, in Australia, you're strong on capital operation and, and distributional support for your affiliates. Um, one of those things is really easy to export. Um, the other two, maybe not, maybe not so easy in terms of time or or investment. I'm really interested in what investment and time you plan to put into operational and distribution support in offshore jurisdictions um, or one or multiple jurisdictions? Yeah, so capital is the one that's easy to export, I'm sure you're referring to. Um, distribution and ops, more difficult. Um, yeah, so look, uh, exporting the model, we've sort of already, we've started. So Akia is going very well, and that was an incubation offshore. Uh, Langdon is an incubation offshore. Again, it's our model. We've said, we've been pleasantly surprised. So Adrian Whittingham, who's sort of leading this, been pleasantly surprised at how receptive talented investment professionals have been to coming into our model. And we've had quite a lot of people very keen. Um, we are careful, um, and this is what you're referring to, Scott. Um, we are a conservative, cautious group. We believe we're well-disciplined and I think the inability to travel has held us back a bit, but we've done a lot of work. So we think um, we can export distribution. I might shut up and let Andrew Chambers speak to that. We're doing that already. We've got a significant um, force overseas. We tend to have smaller numbers of very high-quality people, and it's very manageable. Um, ops, we also have done a lot overseas already. Um, with our usage platform, our Cayman platform, etc., And we do have some people. We've got a senior ops person in London. But um, you're right, we will need to add resources to that. We've pulled that out. We will do it progressively and carefully. Um, we're not going to make huge impacts on our P&L. But, you know, when I boringly kept talking about our Horizon 2 investments in Pinnacle, that's a big part of it. But Andrew, do you want to speak to offshore distribution? Yeah, so um, we made a couple of additional hires I've called out in the presentation over the last uh, six-month period in London and in uh, Pennsylvania, we may have seen in the press in the last uh, day or so. Um, but the speed of hiring in terms of international distribution is really in proportion to four key factors. The first of all is the growth in revenue, both expected as well as current. Then there's the commitment um, of our affiliates themselves to doing international marketing. So we need their full commitment to doing that. Then there's the breadth of native products for local investors. And what I mean by that is ensuring that we have products which are relevant to, say, investors based in the North American market. Obviously, asset classes which are domestic based in Australia, like Australian equities, unsellable over there. So you need sufficient breadth of sellable products into those local markets. And obviously, we're increasingly expanding that product set. And then there's the availability of culturally aligned distribution talent. And that's, that also 
Um, we're not going to hire anyone that doesn't fit our much more collaborative sales culture and intense working culture as well. So it's really those four key factors which will ter- determine the pace of it, but expect us to be adding additional highs over the coming six to 12 months because we feel optimistic about what's in front of us given the, the ongoing flows we have and the current fund we have from 37 countries outside of Australia and, of course, flows from 32 countries in the last six months. And, and we could talk a bit more about ops too, but the theme's the same. We will add ops resources as we need them. Uh, we're not going to sort of damage our P&L with the extent of that investment, but we will keep resourcing ahead of need. Okay, then, thanks. I've taken up enough time. I really appreciate um, the answers. I'll, I'll pass it on to someone else. Thanks, Scott. And our next telephone question comes from the line of Macquarie, from the line of Mr. Tim Lawson. Tim, please ask your question. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. Um, just in a couple of questions from me. Just in terms of the growth in the interstate relationships, um, uh, Andrew, you might have sort of touched a little bit on it, but can you talk about that, that the 260 now up from you know, 190 a year ago? Um, how much is organic? How much is you know, bringing on new... Um, acquisitions, uh, just trying to understand where that's coming through from. Yeah, happy to answer that question. Tim, good to hear from you. Um, so that net 30 new institutional clients in the half excludes anything, for example, based on an acquisition, such as the case of 5D, so that's not included in the numbers. Um, so that's net new institutional clients added. Most of those have come largely from outside of Australia uh, rather than inside of Australia. Uh, and obviously matches the run rate of the six months prior um, as well. You, you'll notice also the diversity of the fund by institutional client. I think you may even called that out in your own report, where um, our largest single institutional client only represents less than 2% of Pinnacle's NPAT as well. And obviously within the institutional clients themselves, we have a lot of um, affiliates represented. They're quite deep relationships. So within our top 20 clients, it's really four and a half affiliates on average. They range between one at the low end to nine affiliates within client portfolios at the upper end to give you a bit of a, a feel. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Um, and also, you made a comment in the slide pack on um, gross institutional flows. So obviously, the, the, there's some moving parts in the half around the low fee mandates, et cetera. But you, you talked about the gross um, flows being you know, higher than, than comps. Um, yep. Can you talk about how sort of stable that is through time and then obviously the net number being infected, affected by the, um, the, the gross outflow? I'm just interested in how stable that gross inflow is. So the, the trajectory has tended to be, to be rising through time. Um, but obviously, based on particularly equity markets, given how much of our SUM is dominated still by equities overall, um, as markets tend to run, you tend to find there's this rebalancing effect. So that's therefore the redemption rates tend to lift as markets. Obviously, your FUM is going up, but investors rebalance back to strategic weights. Um, but the general trajectory of our, of our inflows has been positive and rising over time. And that's reflective of more boutiques, more diverse boutiques, and sellable to a global marketplace rather than just a local one as well. Yep. Yeah, and just a, a question um, to finish, just on costs. Um, can you categorise 
the sort of the investment in both across the affiliates and then um, at the sort of head office, maybe a mix on sort of how, how much is fund investment from the increasing cost and how much is distribution investment? Like, is, is there some way you can sort of split that for us? Hmm. Um, Dan, I'm not sure if you can help with this. I mean, we obviously look at um, at our expenses, you know, by category and so on. Um, we've increased each of those, Tim. Um, and in my head, Dan, they're sort of proportionately going up similarly. Distribution, we've certainly added a lot of resource, you know, quite a lot of resource there ahead of more revenue. And we've also been growing our fund services capabilities. But I don't know whether you can be a bit more specific, Dan. Yeah, no, that, that's about right. And so traditionally, Tim, our people have been split almost down the middle between ops and distribution. And we're still maintaining that trajectory as we grow. About equal numbers of people in distribution and ops, and they've both grown at similar sort of rates. Yep, thank you. And our next telephone question is from uh, the company of Baron Joey from Mr. Nicholas McGarrigal. Nicholas, please ask your question. G'day, guys. Thanks for taking questions. Um, there's obviously a lot of commentary around offshore expansion, and Ian touched on the methodology around how you're looking at uh, acquisitions and expanding. Can you talk through what some of the key strategic attributes of an offshore acquisition would be? Is it really around distribution or is it um, sector or strategy capability? What, what are the key attributes you're looking for strategically? Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that, Nick. Uh, and the answer to it is that, look, we, we have a number of sort of criteria that are very important to us, um, and they, they all are in the mix. Um, I should also say, you know, we're doing a lot of work on things offshore, but we don't know when we'll actually do things. Um, but the things we're looking for, you know, our preference is in diversifying asset classes. So we're certainly putting a lot of effort into private, private market asset classes. Having said that, so, are, so is everyone else, you know, and so... The, the multiples on those businesses are higher, but we do have a preference to do things that would be more diversifying of our existing sort of asset class coverage. Um, you mentioned distribution. That's absolutely correct. We are not a financial investor in fund managers or, or in anything. Um, so we are looking to invest in businesses where we can add value uh, particularly through our distribution, uh, but sometimes also through our experience with, you know, business strategies and, and so on. So we are definitely looking to add value to anything we do. But there's quite a range of things that we're looking at, Nick. So in terms of the, the any acquisition that you might execute on, is it not necessarily to provide some of that administrative distribution support services capability you think you can build that out organically and then invest in more asset manager focused investments in in, the EU, in North America or Europe yeah so look could be that we acquire 
things like that that would help. I would say sort of thematically, we're very confident of our ability to build our uh, institutional distribution, uh, including offshore, maybe retail distribution uh, and maybe some ops capability could be part of any acquisition, but it really depends. Look, at the main thing we're looking for always is investment excellence. It's exactly the same as what we've done in Australia. Is this team um, that we're looking at, are they best of their class? You know, are they excellent, talented investment professionals? And is there a major market for what they do? That's still the most important thing. Um, Recognising at the same time we've got the objective of diversifying asset classes and, yes, building our distribution and ops capability offshore as well. So it's and all of those factors. Yeah, that's that's a, that's that's good to understand. I mean, the um, I suppose it's it's easier to build out that operational capability when you've got profitability coming from an existing asset manager in that market, as opposed to building that pinnacle overhead and support structure well ahead true. of that revenue. Is that the way you think about timing? Yes, that's true. We like to know the revenue is there or coming, but also that also informs us as to exactly what the nature of those ops capabilities should be. So the ops that you need for this asset class is not exactly the same as that asset class. So it helps to inform the emphasis in our ops capability as well. Ian, it's probably worth emphasising as well, the number one reason why people want to partner with us ultimately is large-scale distribution. because uh, uh, globally you tend to find anyone that's looking to acquire the interest in a boutique asset manager wants to own a majority shareholder, be the majority shareholder in the firm. We've mastered being minority shareholders and with, with protections. And typically any competition we have in the minority um, staking business is the GP staking firm, the like of Peters Hill and others, but they don't provide large-scale distribution. That's a real competitive advantage is we've really mastered that minority shareholder ownership with large-scale distribution and operational infrastructure, which makes our model utterly unique globally. Yeah, absolutely. And when we yeah. talk about exporting our model, that's, that's all part of it. It's our model for supporting talented investment professionals, but it's also the distribution uh, value that we bring to them. And that's, yeah, as Chambo said, that's really important. Yes, I mean, in that context, you mentioned that some of the asset classes and things that you're looking at are competitive. I imagine, to your point, there's very few players in the US that are providing minority investment and distribution support hand-in-hand. Usually it's passive minority or distribution support, but owning the majority. So does that mean that you're actually in competitive processes or you tend to self-select the less competitive processes because they want that distribution support? Yeah, so what you've said there is absolutely correct, but it doesn't mean that they can completely ignore valuations. So, um, you know, we're always to some degree in competition. It's not the sh- competition is not as sharp because, as you say, we have some special advantages. But, you know, when the multiples in, ver- in private asset classes are elevated, um, we can't completely um, protect ourselves from that. 
And just in terms of the the appetite to acquire, you've obviously got 135 million of dry powder. Um, you know, there's obviously large acquisitions that could be on the table in North America. Does the current Pinnacle share price create complications um, in in doing some of these deals, or do you feel like you you're, you're comfortable with the balance sheet position and equity if it's needed? Yeah. So, look, we don't uh, we don't like to speculate on these things, Nick. Um, I don't think the current share price should loom too large in our thinking. Um, our thinking is dominated by the opportunities, the quality of them, the growth that we believe can be generated and so on. Um, and if we find the right things at the right price, then we'll figure out funding. But having that dry powder, you know, we raise that capital, that sort of replenishment capital, that's very helpful it puts us in a much stronger position when we're talking to people when we know we've got that money sitting in the bank or sitting in the uh, liquid strategies of affiliates. I might just ask one last one. Um, apologies if I'm being a bit uh, long on the questions, but um, obviously the pinnacle parent profitability was quite high in the half year compared to prior years. Um, can you just, I think you might have, partly answered this in the in previous responses, but is there an intention to reinvest some of that profitable run rate, given it is sustainable because it's revenue share driven? Is there a plan to reinvest that in, in offshore particularly um, and certain domestic strategic priorities? Yeah. So we don't really think of it, Nick, that, oh, well, we're generating bigger profits in Pinnacle Parents, therefore we'll put the foot down on spending on... Um, you know, for Horizon 2. Um, the pinnacle parent P&L is just an outcome and we don't sort of particularly target things. We've said we won't let it, uh, you know, become substantially negative. But, um, look, we will invest in additional resourcings for Horizon 2 as needed and as dictated by the opportunities we um, we like to think that we wouldn't be constrained from being ready and servicing any opportunities that we find that are attractive. So it's like the opportunity first and then we'll decide the resourcing, not sort of ration how much resourcing we'll put in. Although we're always sensible about it relative to revenue. Does that sort of answer it? Um, you know, we've always signalled to people, don't budget for substantial profits or losses in Pinnacle Parent. Now, obviously, our revenue is growing very nicely, uh, but so will our costs keep growing as we expand. Yeah, I guess the, you probably can't make a comment on this, um, given that it would constitute guidance, but you've obviously produced a $4 million profit in the half year. Usually, the second half is stronger because of institutional success-based uh, fees. So you're potentially annualising a better than $8 million result, which, quote-unquote, would be substantial. So that's probably just where I'm, I'm thinking in terms of what the implication is of that really strong result in the first half. Well, you're right. We can't, uh, we can't forecast those things. And uh, so I'm going I'm to respectfully duck that a little bit, Nick. Um, that's fair. That's you know, fine. There's a lot of moving parts there in Pinnacle Parent. Yeah, and I mean, I noticed that you've made a couple of relatively senior appointments in the US in the last couple of months as well, so I'm sure that that adds to that cost growth in the second half. 
Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, our costs have grown significantly, which is a significant part of that has been adding resource uh, ahead of, you know, Horizon 2 resource. Thanks. And our next telephone question is from the company of Morningstar from Mr. Sean Lur. Sean, please ask your question. Thank you. Good morning, guys. I just have two quick questions. Uh, the first one, uh, probably to you, Ian. Um, today's release echoes a recent um, news, which you explained super funds are sort of sticking to benchmark tracking and, and vanilla strategies, and hedge funds are an area where super funds have lost appetite. So I'm just curious, how should we make of this statement? You know, does this imply you know, Pinnacle has better odds to beat the super funds, or Pinnacle can better fill some of the gaps in the super funds asset allocation, or there's just less demand for Pinnacle's um, alternative strategy. So is it overall a positive or a negative? Yeah, so this might be one for Andrew, but the general comment is, I mean, there are certain trends in the institutional market that we've been calling out for quite some time, and we've been explaining how, you know, to some extent that's a negative for all active fund managers, but equally, we have a range of strategies that are ideal for those um, those trends. So, you know, on a net basis, um, we're not saying it's particularly either negative or positive. There are swings and roundabouts in it. Uh, we did mention uh, there was rebalancing, which we think is a short-term factor. Um, we did mention um, your super, your future, which is exactly as you said there, Sean, which is causing people to be, you know, take less active positions. Um, and, you know, that varies by super fund according to how close they are to their, you know, um, failing performance tests and so on. So that's not uniform either. But we do have uh, quite a significant range of strategies that are very suitable for that um, that particular market. Andrew, did you want to say anything about that? I think that you've, um, you've summarised it very well. A number of our managers can run lower risk-type strategies um, for investors, and Plato would be a very good example of that, where you see more money flow to enhanced passive-type portfolios um, because the tolerance for tracking error risk, particularly for underperforming funds, has um, brought in their appetite for um, for being much more actively exposed. Um, so, but um, in other cases, we're tending to find that simply mandates are being trimmed in size, such the active component is not as large. And where that's occurred, I think that's largely finished the what we've seen in the last half, um, and not something we're going to see on a really um, substantial basis in the future. But clearly, there's cost pressures in the market and there is pressure to perform and not be in that bottom quartile of superannuation funds. Um, I should add that um, obviously we have a trend of internalisation, <clears throat> which is obviously occurring in a number of very large superannuation funds. Um, the demand has not gone away for high active risk managers, which can complement those sort of core-based internal capabilities. And really interestingly, in some cases, we're actually in the process of taking on what was an internally managed capability to some of our managers to manage on their behalf. So it's, it's the reverse, the externalisation 
of a form of internal capability. So it's not just one-way traffic. All right, thanks for that. Um, the second question and the last question is just just some further clarification on uh, the prior question on install flows. So just to be clear, when install clients rebalance their portfolio and take profits, where do you see this money going to? Do they you know, flow into other Pinnacle boutiques or does it go out of Pinnacle affiliates? And also, does the money typically come back at the bottom of the market or do they usually come back you know, some point of the time in the future when the market is recovering strongly. So again, for Andrew... Oh, sorry. You go, Andrew. Yeah, so you tend to find at market extremes, then the reweighting happens with, with greater intensity, as we saw when the market rallied. But equally, on the other opposite side, in March of 2020, the rate of inflows was particularly strong as well on the other side of it. So... You do tend to find that at a market extreme point, um, the rebalancing can be more intense. And then there's a lot more trimming and tailoring based on other levels um, in the market in between. So, um, but you t what's one trend in, in superannuation land over the last the five years has been much more systematic rebalancing than what they have done historically, which is much more fundamentally based. So, um, so it tends to be... Um, tends to be on mass and, um, and correlated amongst a number of clients when it occurs. Um, but obviously, during that period of time, you can still be winning net business, um, you know, overall in terms of appointments versus terminations of mandates, which is something we've clearly been doing with the addition of 30 new clients in the last half. All right, that's good. Thank you. And certainly, some of those that rebalanced money did come into other Pinnacle affiliates. Sorry, Ian, that's a good point. Yeah, got it. Thank you. Um, and then probably the two to call out would have been uh, Metrics Credit Partners and Coolabar on sort of the alternative credit side where we've seen that. But obviously, a lot of superannuation funds have been accumulating larger cash levels as well in the process too. Our next telephone question comes from the company of OID Minute. From Nick Burgess. Nick, please ask your question. Yeah, morning, uh, Ian. Uh, morning, team. Uh, just a couple of uh, follow-up questions. Just at the risk of labouring the point, just a previous point, Ian, on the uh, pinnacle parent. I think you've been quite strong previously of, of sort of saying to aim for a break-even result, but has been discussed. Um, it's profitable, but you're also quite positive uh, on the retail flow environment. So is that break-even comment that you've previously made still valid? Yeah. So... Uh, thanks for that, Nick. Um, so, so again, we don't want to make um, forecasts, you know, sort of financial forecasts. But, um, I mean, you're right, the trends that you've called out. Um, we have said for some time, look for Pinnacle Parent revenue to grow nicely as our, um, you know, our distribution arrangements that are, you know, percentages of retail revenue and so on. And as retail flows continue to be strong, but like obviously our retail flows have been extraordinarily strong and that has been very helpful for Pinnacle Parent revenue. Um, so that, that is definitely a factor that should be ongoing. Um, but we're also equally calling out that we will be adding to our costs. We already did. Our uh, salary costs went up like from about six million to nine million, 
I mean, uh, so we're not skanking on uh, extra resources uh, to be ready for growth. But I think what I said before um, is valid, which is that we don't, we don't say, oh, well, we're getting extra revenue, therefore we'll spend more on expenses. We will spend on resourcing according to the opportunities that we're seeing. We want to be resourced ahead of growth. That's why I called out all of that Horizon 2 expenditure. But as to what the net of all of that is in the P&L uh, of Pinnacle Parent, we don't really want to forecast it. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that's helpful. Thanks. Just a couple of uh, further questions. Just on reminiscent, you know, clearly small and not really a profit uh, contributor. Um, but your assessment of why that didn't work and any 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 lessons from that venture? Yeah. So look, there was some bad luck there, to be honest. And um, Dave Adams had a quite a lot of indications. Um, of institutions who wanted to put quite large amounts with him, which were sort of deferred and then deferred. I do think the environment um, of the last two or three years has not been conducive to, you know, hedge funds, um, macro funds and so on. And in the end, you know, it was basically... Dave and we all sort of lost patience and we said we don't know how long it's going to be before these people will um, put money into it. There's also a little bit of a view that um, standalone boutiques in that kind of space are not as desirable anymore as being part of something bigger, which is why, for example, Omega merged into Plato so they could be part of something bigger. So, yeah, there were certainly some lessons um, I've got to tell you, if I could be a bit cheeky, one lesson for me is that I feel it's a bit unfair that our P&L doesn't mark up increases in the value of affiliates, but marks down, marks down the ones that, uh, you know, the little ones that, that don't work. But um, look, we have had very few that don't work, but we've shown discipline in calling them when that's been the case. I think that's also part of the lesson. Yep. Okay, probably that's... worth that. Um, just just to that point, is the capacity to be face-to-face -face pe with people when you're a discretionary hedge fund manager versus a systematic one becomes incredibly important The people are going to look you in the eyes in person, um, particularly in the hedge fund world where 70% of the capital is sourced from North America, where we haven't, of course, been able to travel since really the establishment of the firm. Um, so that made it challenging. And then as Ian pointed out, I think that gravitation away from boutiques there are large multi-strategy platforms, you know, the likes of Millennium Capital and others uh, globally has also been sort of a trend um, towards really larger, more diversified platforms. Okay, thanks very much. That's helpful. Just one final question, Ian. Just Coolabar and Metrics have both had extraordinary growth since you've taken your ownership stakes in those businesses. Just how should we think about the current momentum and, and the broader question of capacity in each of those? So um, both in retail and institutional, we've had very strong growth. Um, retail for me has been particularly exciting for both Metrics and Cooler Bar, but also institutional. Um, they both have large capacity and are adding additional strategies, call them sub-strategies sub or adjacent strategies, 
which will keep growing their capacities. So both Metrics and Coolabar have large capacities. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah. And our final question on today's Q&A is from the company Wilson's from John Sanford High. Please ask your question, John. Oh, good morning, gents. Um, thanks for um, taking my question. Uh, just on affiliate margins, if I may, um, another you know, strong result, but but down a little bit uh, on the PCP, and maybe perhaps starting to be reflective of a of a bit of a um, change in FUM. Can you give us an indication on what's going to drive that in the near term, and perhaps what contributed to the result this time? Yeah, so it's it's fairly straightforward in the sense that, as I mentioned, um, there is operating leverage in most of our affiliates so that as their thumb grows, um, their percentage revenue growth is higher than their percentage cost growth. That's inherent. That will come through over time. But offsetting that, we talked about the Horizon 3 investments. Just about every one of our affiliates has added resources to add strategies to meet market demand that they're seeing. So that's an offsetting factor. So what you're seeing in the affiliates P&L is the net of those two um, forces, if you like. And so, yes, um, you know, to the extent that Insto flows were a bit lower, um, you get less of the operating leverage coming through. But we are definitely have added resources in you know, most of our affiliates. And we encourage that. It's a really good investment to add some resource to bring in new strategies because the return you're going to get on that investment over time is going to be large. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, notwithstanding, perhaps reminiscent might move the dial, but there, there are other funds that have probably been loss-making... Is that expected to change within the next six months? Could that could that improve or lead to further expansion with that margin? So we always have um, affiliates that are still in the development phase. So Akia has been loss making. Um, we're very confident Akia is going to become profitable uh, reasonably soon. So it flips from being a negative to a positive. Um, and that's sort of an ongoing process. The pace of it varies by affiliate, but we typically then are always, as affiliates are coming out of loss-making, we're adding new ones. So we've added Langdon, and we'll probably add some more. So it's a little bit of a revolving thing, John. Great. And um, last one from me um, is... Just perhaps it'd be nice to get some colour on the strategy you have around seeding the second or the next Palisade fund. Um, I've always understood that there's a fair bit of, um, I guess, capital lined up to be deployed with those funds because the performance is so good. Um, just explain your thinking. Is that an initial and then you, and you, you'll pull it back out or is it just... There's yeah. an investment opportunity here that's just too good to ignore for, for shareholders. Yeah, well, it's sort of, it's a bit of both of those. 
what happens? So this is a bit unusual for us to put that amount of money in. Yeah. It could be there as long as a year. It was seen as very valuable to boost. They're doing a $250 million fundraise for Palisade Impact. But um, there's a little bit of chicken and egg that you want to get the assets so that you can get the thumb. And so we boosted that by um, investing some thumb and they gave us a bit of extra equity directly in Palisade Impact. Um, to be honest, um, there were other people pressing and suggesting that they could provide some seed farm in exchange for some equity. And we said, no, we'd prefer it not to go outside of the family. We'd sooner have Pinnacle do that. But that money, I don't know how long it'll be tied up, um, probably up to a year, but no longer. And then we'd recycle it. Great. Thank you very much. Um, appreciate that, um, taking my questions. No, you're welcome. Look, we, um, we're late for another commitment. We probably need to, to, to jump off um, to the organiser. That's perfectly fine. Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude our conference for today. Thank you for all participating. You may all disconnect and have a great day. Goodbye. Thanks to everybody for joining.